Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. When I was your age, television was called books. Hey there, friends and fellow readers. Welcome to episode 48 of the Book Exchange podcast. Podcast that's really just one long, sustained conversation about books and reading and literature, which is something myself and my co-host have been doing, man, almost five decades now. So, A, we're getting old. And um, B, speaking of my co-host, my name is John. I'm coming from Maryland. My co-host is on the line. His name is Jude. Jude, I assume you're there. Here I am, ready to go. All right. And uh, yeah, this, this we are twin brothers. Um, basically, you just enjoy nerding out about every imaginable type of book or, or literary form. And we're going to keep that going with episode 48 today. Now, episode 48... Well, I'm calling it Giving the Essay a Try. And, you know, there may be a listener or two or ten out there who might know why I might call it that. And if you don't, if it, the answer doesn't spring immediately to mind, you will find out in just a little bit. But our subject today are essays, the art of the essay. We're going to talk about some of our favorite essay collections and essay writers. Uh, who knows, one of us may even have, have taken a crack once or twice or a hundred times at writing an essay themselves. So we may talk about that a little bit, but really this is, and uh, that means it's as usual, it's gonna take us into all kinds of interesting directions and subject matter. So Jude, I'm excited for the conversation. How about you? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think this uh, particular topic has been, you know, largely avoided by us. And we do talk about nonfiction, but not this particular form. But I think it's, you know, sort of always been ripe for us to take a take a try at it, as you said. And yeah. And and, and, you know, and the other thing is that it's really so it's something we could have talked about in our first three or four or five episodes, really. But because it's been sort of all along, essays have been a a big part of reading really for both of us. I mean, I I might say more for you because you're, you know, the you know, as our listeners know, sort of the the more nonfiction guy, and I gravitate towards fiction, but I've certainly read plenty of essays. And uh, as you were alluding to, I've also written quite a bit of essays over many decades, and it's a big part of my reading also. So like, uh, you know, it was funny, we came up with this, and then we sort of thought, you know, well, we're gonna have to prep like we do for all of them. But you know, we got plenty of, uh, you know, ammunition waiting to be shot off here. Yeah, no question about that. And, and you won't be surprised to hear me say this, but uh, and we've talked about this many times, you know, just personally, but it, just in running up to the show and preparing for it kind of made me realize that the essay is one of my favorite literary forms. I, I mean, you could argue maybe my favorite um, just because and we're going to get into, you know, briefly kind of what the essay is and, you know, why we may appreciate it. But 
You know, number one, digestible form, you know, by definition, they don't go on for, you know, hundreds of pages, um, unless you're Charles Dickens or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he probably reined it in, too, if he was writing an essay. Uh, Number two, it's, and you know, the the, the subject matter is various and sundry. It's kind of like at the whim of the writer, what they might want to write about. And I think that makes it really, it's just a rich, it's just a rich kind of genre, if you will. And we're going to get into that quite a bit here coming up, so I, I won't spoil that now. But I, I really, because you can sit down and maybe read one and just get a whole heck of a lot out of it. And then you might sit down and read another by the same writer. And you're off on a completely different topic and in, uh, on a completely different planet, as it were. And I, I really like that. I like that kind of ping-ponging around. So uh, that's what the conversation yeah. do, too, I'm sure. So, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Um, I don't think I don't have any kind of notes or any administrative stuff I need to say um, at the U. No, administrative notes, not really. Just uh, check out the, the ways to contact us that I mentioned time or in our or in every episode description you can find the website and the email address to get a hold of us if you want to you know but other, otherwise no i mean I, we can plunge right in i was going to make another comment about the essay essays in general but i think we can you know we can get going yeah I, you'll get that opportunity in, in just about a minute but you know if you're familiar with the show you know we always start out by by talking about what we are happen to be reading right now so uh jude what do you have going and uh, why is it of interest to our listeners? Well, if they're interested in this in this uh, episode today, it's of interest to our listeners. So I'm not going to say much about it here. I'm reading a, one of the episodes, or one of the, sorry, reading one of the collections, essay collections that I really want to highlight today. So I'll get into that a little bit later. But the book, for the record, it's an essay collection that came out in the early 2000s. It's called Orphans. And it was written by uh, a writer named Charles D'Ambrosio. So we'll talk about that more. It's kind of a, it's a little bit of an obscure essay collection today, but um, it's a real favorite of mine. I'll try to explain why, but that's what I'm, I was trying to jam it in, get it all done before this episode didn't get all the way there, but about, you know, over halfway through. What about yeah, you? Well, I, can re- I can relate to that. You know, that's, we are, we are often doing that, trying to, you know, do the last minute homework before we actually sit down to record. Often we don't all quite right. get there, but you do what you can with your busy life. That's true. Yeah. All right. Um, and so really quickly, because it's, it is not related to this topic, but I'll mention it. Um, uh, I am. I just started reading a novel that you're you're going to be very excited that I'm dipping into. It's one that you've brought up on this show more than once. I know in one of our episodes, I, I, I should have. Where is that intern? You know, every time <laughs> I try to find try to find that guy, you know, he, he's like out for coffee or something. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a young woman. Uh, she keeps slipping out with her friends or something like that. I'm not sure. Okay, well, uh, clearly we need to forge a better relationship with our intern. But uh, <laughs> I would have I would have asked her to look up the episode where you talk at some length about Tim Winton's The Shepherd's Hut, which is Tim Winton being an Australian writer. You've mentioned him a number of times on this show. Um, and this is... Uh, one of our episodes, you did talk at length about the Shepherd's Hut, this particular novel. It's the first time yeah, I've read yeah. one of, one I'll interrupt novels. for a second. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm interrupting you, but it's like 9, 10, or 11, and it's the episode on isolation. I want to say. All right. Well, awesome. So like, uh, 
maybe, maybe, you know, we need to renegotiate that contract with that intern. Perhaps we don't even need her because we have you, (laughs) we have you on the squad, but um, yeah, there you go. So if you're interested in hearing more about the shepherd's hut, at least from Jude's perspective, you can look up that older episode, but I'm just at the very beginning of it. Tim Winton, as I said, is an Australian writer. Uh, Jude, you kind of discovered him almost accidentally and, and really were taken with his prose and his writing. And um, you actually sent me one of his nonfiction books, which I read and really enjoyed, which is about the landscape he grew up with in the West of Australia. And um, it's very early in this novel, so I don't have too much to say about it, but um, it, it involves a young a young guy, about 17 years old, I'll, I'll estimate, um, who kind of, he's from a troubled home. His father ends up getting killed, and he's, he sort of takes off on the run. And uh, he's headed somewhere north into the kind of the, the badlands of Australia, and that's about all I know. Um, but it's, it's kind of a gripping opening, so I'm really looking forward to see, see where this novel goes and, you know, share, share thoughts and notes with you after I'm done. So I don't, I, I'm not along early, you know, into it enough to really give any more than that. But uh, that's what I happen to be reading at the moment. Yeah, great book. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it offline, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what you make of it. But Tim Winton is a really great Australian writer. He's definitely worth reading. Anybody out there, if you're looking for an Australian to read, you can do a lot worse than Tim Winton. So doesn't seem like he's that well known here in the United States too, which, which obviously from your point of view is a shame, but um, I think he's still alive and still writing. So ho- hopefully that'll change as he continues to go on. All right. All right. Well, why don't we take, we'll take a, our first break, a quick break, and then we'll come back and get right into the topic at hand. That works for me. All right. All right, Jude. Well, this is this is how I decided to start this start this off today because, man, it, I mean, as we as we always say, but there's so much material here. It's and so many great, you know, practitioners of the form of the essay. It's it's kind of hard to know where to start. But in a sense, I thought I would go back to the beginning, at least the beginning, uh, the sort of recognized beginning of this literary form that we call the essay. And in order to do that. I myself, we were just talking about, you know, our older episodes. I myself, have going all, I'm going all the way back to episode two, our second episode, where we talked about, um, longtime listeners may recall, that we started off this podcast with a, a pair of episodes called The Books That Made Us. And we divided that into fiction and nonfiction. And it was sort of mm-hmm. just what it sounds like. You know, it was just we each, we each uh, picked some, chose some books that were you know, instrumental in kind of our, our formation as readers and as thinkers and as people, um, if that doesn't sound too lofty, which it probably does. But anyway, one, one of my nonfiction choices was from the great historian and writer Daniel Borston, and he wrote a, a series of really big, thick books. One was called The Discoverers. The second one was called The Creators. The third one is called The Seekers. 
And I loved all three of those books. But the book, the book that I discussed way back in episode two, episode two is called The Creators. And it's basically, a, it, well, the subtitle of the book is A History of Heroes of the Imagination. So he kind of like goes through all the various forms of human creativity. Um, it's a, you know, it's like a 900 page book and he just highlights, you know, noteworthy practitioners of these various forms. Anyway, one of those, one of the chapters, it's, it's fairly late in the book. It's called, it's chapter 57. It's called Inventing the Essay. And it's about Michel de Montaigne, who is the French writer and sort of intellectual who literally, literally created this form. So I thought I'm going to read a short passage from this to kind of set up this topic. And uh, I thought I would just have you, you sort of react to it briefly. You know, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but um, you can react to it briefly. But then we, we just it, it'll sort of segue into and I'll let you comment on this. Like, you know, what is it about the essay that you find compelling or interesting or worth reading? Does that sound OK? Well, sure. I'll do my best. Okay, so this is from Daniel Borston's The Creators, and he's writing about, uh, this is a chapter on Montaigne. For literary self-portrait, a new form was created by a French provincial landover, landowner from the Renaissance. Michel de Montaigne, who was born in 1533, died in 1592, christened his creation Essays, from the French Essayer, to try, the name itself revealed that the task Montaigne had set himself seemed difficult and uncertain. He, da he dared claim only that he had made some, quote, tries in his new exercise in self-revelation. Montaigne's preface to his 1850, uh, I'm sorry, 1580 version of the essays declared, this reader is an honest book. I want to appear in my simple address without strain or artifice, for it is myself that I portray. My imperfections may be, read, may be read to the life and my natural form will be here insofar as respect for the public allows. Had my lot been cast among those people who are said to live under the kindly liberty of nature's primal laws, I should, I assure you, most gladly have painted myself complete and in all my nakedness. So reader, I am myself the substance of my book, and there is no reason why you should waste your leisure on so frivolous and unrewarding a subject. <laughs> so <laughs> that's from the introduction, 1580, of, of the essays by Montaigne, and Borston then writes, despite this uninviting invitation, the book survived to become a model for our most popular, most influential, and most widely imitated form of nonfiction. So that's th th those are just a couple of thoughts from this book, but I, I kind of wanted to start with Montaigne in a way, because he is you know kind of recognized as the as the crafter of this of this type of of uh, writing. But really, for me, the nugget that I wanted to focus in on a little bit is, you know, if you I, and I haven't read all of Montaigne by the way, it, it Montaigne is one of my picks for this episode because his essays are really interesting, and I'll talk about him maybe a little bit more. Uh, they're still very much worth reading. But I think I think the nugget there that I wanted to focus on is he just had this, you know, there have always been different forms of, you know, writing about one's life, whether it's autobiography or, or uh, you know, sort of confessional, like in the St. Augustine vein. You know, he's not the first person to write about his own life. But he kind of created this this form where he just, 
it would muse kind of in a, in a, in a you know, free-spirited way about whatever topics interested him. And he would not be afraid to include himself in that analysis. So if he's writing about, like he might write about something as, as diverse as like on sleep or on waking up early or on, uh, you know, some thoughts about death, but he wasn't afraid to include himself and his own thoughts and reflections in these pieces. And so like, to me, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the essay is that you're getting, you know, presumably you're reading an essay from a writer because you're interested in what they think, but whatever topic they're exploring, they're not, they're not afraid to kind of give you their own take on it and maybe even, you know, draw from their own life. And I think that makes it, you know, number one, personal, two, just kind of, you know, interesting. It gives them the thought, the ability and the flexibility to kind of, you know, muse on a certain topic, you know, and you kind of get a, a slice of their mind as it were. So that, you know, that, that's one of the things that I find interesting about reading essays because it really kind of gives you a window into a certain mind. Um, so, you know, that's a lot. I'm not going to ask you to comment on all of that, but I, I just, I bring that up because, you know, Montaigne is recognized as the sort of, you know, first person to really, you know, write in this manner. Um, but what would you say you find in, in a general sense, you know, compelling about reading essays from some of your favorite writers? Uh, well, John, the intern has just tapped me on the shoulder and told me I had to go out and get some donuts. So I got to <laughs> leave because I'm so intimidated by that setup, you know, like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, you can let her yeah, it is a, what you can let her get the donuts. Yeah. Yeah. I just sent her out to get the donuts. Yeah. She's got to earn her keep. So, okay. Well, uh, wonderful setup. Um, great title too. I, when you said the title, it didn't hit me right away, but then it started to creep back from my memory, which undoubtedly I learned that nugget about the, the root of the word essay from you. So it started coming back to me. So I, I like the title. Um, yeah, there's a lot to take on there, but so, okay. So I, I am not, um, really familiar with Montaigne's work. I'm sort of ashamed to say In fact that if I've read any of his essays, there would only be one or two in school somewhere. So I'm, I'm not as well versed on him. Not sure if I totally knew that he invented it outright, but I knew he was definitely the sort of considered the father of the essay in a way. But so two, two things stepped out, jumped out at me from the passage you read from the creators. And I guess I'll comment on both of those as a way of trying to, you know, address your question, you know, um, and the first one was the phrase literary self-portrait. And then you actually, you kind of explained it a little bit better than I can in some of your subsequent comments, but you know, it, the thing about it is, so the essay can be, I guess, can be as, um, as, as varied as there are individuals, like as you were, as you were starting to explain, because one of the qualities of it, I guess, is that it's your, you're getting, and when it's implied in that phrase, literary self-portrait, you're getting something of the person who's doing the essay, who's creating the essay, as you explained. And yeah. for me, that really, so I, I, I would I would really hesitate to call myself an essayist, even though I think I do on a book I have coming out. But anyway, um, 
because I find the form kind of elusive, kind of like short fiction, you know, but I think part of the nature of it is that it's elusive for every, everyone. And I'm going to get to that in a second, but you know, you're definitely, when you're trying to write one, I know from my experience of writing essays that you're, you know, it's true. You're getting, you're getting not just like an interesting topic. You're getting sort of like my take on an interesting topic. So it's not like, you know, essay on, you know, surgery. It's an essay on, you know, John Lovell's take on surgery, you know, or, or, or whatever. So that's like sort of inherent to the form. And it's interesting that, you know, um, I guess it was Borston who, who used the phrase literary self-portrait. That wasn't Montaigne's phrase. That was Borston's phrase. Uh, Yeah, that was Borston. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting way to put it because you are getting a little bit of a glimpse of the writer and maybe more than a little bit each time you read an essay. And that is, and I'm with you, that's a part of the appeal of the form is that you're getting, you know, somebody else's, you know, unique take on something so that if the next essay is wrote about the same thing, it would be a completely different experience. And the other thing I really liked about that quote, John, from, from the creators was the root word again, but the, the, this notion that when you're writing an essay, it's an, it's like an attempt. Um, right. And, and that's also consistent with my experience. I think what happens, you know, when you sit down to write an essay or, or, you know, when somebody writes an essay is you have this thing that's, that's really engaged your imagination and, you know, sort of lit your fires as a writer. Right. And you, you're not totally sure, at least this is my experience. You're, you're sure what the topic is. You're not sure what it is about it. That's like really moving you to write your piece. And I'm not sure maybe some of the greatest essayists or, or other essayists could say this, but at least in my own experience and both as a writer and a reader of them, I don't know if you ever actually get to what that thing is, you know, so that the idea that it's based on the French verb of try, it means it's kind of like an ambitious thing to do, but you know, I don't know if you ever quite get there, even if what, you know, with some of the greatest essays, in the history of literature or some of my favorite essays that I've written, I don't know if you'd get all the way there. You're trying to, the exercise is to try to sort of discover what it is that, that really moved you to write. But oftentimes I think that remains elusive and what you get is kind of the searching, I guess. And the, and the, uh, the attempt to pin down what it is about that particular thing that just got you going in the first place. And, you know, I was going to say earlier, just and then I'll hand it back over to you. But in your introduction, you know, a comment I was going to make is that I noticed when I was preparing for this episode that this particular form, you know, short stories are one thing, long form books, nonfiction and all these things are one thing. But when it comes to the essay, I realized as I was setting down my list of the, the essay collections I wanted to talk about, and it's not that long, but an essay collection, a really good essay collection, though, John, and I know this resonates with you, can really stay with you in a way that fiction books don't always do or long form fiction books don't always do. Like some of these essay collections I'm going to talk about today, not only they're just my favorite of this particular form, but they really have stayed within me. And I don't I'm not talking about I remember this paragraph from halfway through the book, but there's some kind of effect of these books that really really lasted with me and i think that's also sort of unique to the forum in a way so i don't know i kind of just that was really buckshot but just just you know as we delve into the form it's it's interesting to to discover 
about, you know? Yeah, no, I think there were a lot of great points in there. I agree with the last one you were making for sure. I mean, some of these books that I'm going to talk about today have stayed with me for years. And that's why I said in the beginning of this conversation, in some ways, this is one of my favorite forums because, you know, a great book of essays is, can really like throw you for a loop in a way, you know, or, or I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but like really just get under your skin and, and, and be, be influential. But, um, and another thing I think you said that I, I really like, and, and it has, has proven to be the case in a lot of collections of essays that I've read is this idea, again, that goes back to like giving it a try and the elusive nature of what you're writing about. I mean, that, that, the, the elusive nature that, you know, kind of not quite getting there, but it's more about the journey. You know, I found that I've found that from re reading, you know, some of these essays of Montaigne all the way to, you know, an essay collection I read, I reread recently for this episode, which was, you know, written, you know, recently, 2011, in which the author was like, you know, wrestling with different topics. And, and, and he was very transparent to say, you know, I, I'm not even, I'm not sure what I, what I'm getting at here and whether I'm getting to the very bottom of it, but, you know, we're just going to see where this, where this goes, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and there's something really interesting about that. And the other reason, and I'll, I'll, I'll move off of Montaigne and I'll, I'll pass it to you for your first election. But the thing about, you know, these, these essays were written in, you know, 1500, late 1500s, but they, there's, there, there, the combination of them being the topics being kind of various in general, but also sort of universal and also his style, which we talked about already and that he was, he just kind of like muses on the topic and draw and he was very, you know, well-read. So he drew from all kinds of literary sources and he just, you know, each one is kind of just, you know, you, you use the word buckshot and that's kind of what these are. They're just his thoughts and they, you know, and how they relate to the particular topic, but it's just, it makes them still relevant today. Like, you know, some of the, like, there's a really interesting essay from Montaigne that I've read a couple of times and it's called to philosophize is to learn how to die. And he, and he opens with a quote from Cicero, which is basically that it says something like, you know, good philosophy teaches you how to die or die well. And you kind of think, well, that's sort of interesting. And then he just kind of muses on that. And he talks about, you know, what it means to, have a good death, which me, which which leads very much to well, what was your life like? Which you know, he ties the pursuit of philosophy to like living a rich life. You know, so you can read that essay today and draw a lot from it. You know, it's it, these are universal things. You know, we all think about well, have a good death. You know, whatever that means, and 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 you know, the way to do that is to lead a rich life. Well, what does that mean? You know, so there's you get what I'm saying. You know, there's there's uh, right. You know. There's plenty that you could you could draw from in that discussion, but you know some of his topics are much more kind of not pedestrian, but just he wrote, writes an essay on on the resemblance of children to their fathers, or on drunkenness, or on the affection of fathers for their children, or on the inconstancy of our actions, which is just like you know I I I don't do what I say I'm going to do. You know who can't relate to that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And there's a great one on educating children. So there's my, my point there is that, you know, a lot of these are still, even though they were written so long ago, there's plenty, if you sit down to read it, there's plenty in there that we can all relate to. So 
Anyway, with that being said, uh, what's the first book that you would want to recommend to our our listeners, you know, in terms of collections of essays? Well, I'm going to pull a little bit of an audible here, John. I'm going to, I'm actually going to cover two in my first salvo, if I could do that, just in the interest of both expediency and just because they seem to be fairly closely related. Why not? So, um, so in my, I have a list of the five sort of primary selections books I wanted to talk about. And the first two and a few others also in a way, but the first two definitely uh, are related to uh, my own tradition of being a, a, a Christian and a Roman Catholic, but also in having, and they're related to that kind of wor- view of the world, you know, which is just, you know, a part and parcel of, you know, sort of our upbringing as we discussed many times and, and, and my reading, um, it's not everything, but it's definitely, these are two books that speak to that side of me, although not only, that side of me as I'll get into. So the first one, I'm just going to try, we say this all the time, but I'm, I'm just going to talk about it sort of briefly. And that's because I've talked an awful lot about this writer already. Her name is Flannery O'Connor. So she goes all the way back to, um, I, I might've even talked about this books. And I think I did in the, that second episode you mentioned called the books that made us nonfiction. Okay. Um, but I would, and we talked about Flannery O'Connor in our very last episode, um, episode 47 of Novels on Spiritual Journeys. So we don't need to talk a whole lot more about her, but I couldn't, there's no way I could discuss this topic because probably the most impactful essay collection on my life is she wrote it and it's called Mystery and Manners. And it has a subtitle of Occasional Prose. And that mm-hmm. I'll just say, and we've talked about it before. I, I think I did talk about it more at length on episode two. So people can check that out. If I'm not mistaken, um, I should have. If I if I didn't, I should have <laughs> on the non-fiction books that made me. Um, Mystery of Manners is a collection of uh, like um, pieces that Flannery O'Connor was invited to, to either write or given an oral form that were collected um, after her death. That basically has to do with the vocation of being a writer, but also being a Christian writer. And then towards the end of the book, it gets more specific a granular about being a Catholic writer growing up in the Protestant South and working in the Protestant South. And most of the essays are about those things, either, either writing fiction or creativity or um, being a Christian, you know, sort of a fish out of water as a Catholic in a Protestant area or what it means to be a Catholic writer and or a Catholic fiction writer. And these are seminal essays on these subjects they're very famous, and um, it's a book that a lot of writers kind of revere. And for me, I probably read it about three times, if not four. Um, I read it during graduate school, and it's just really, it, it's like most O'Connor, it's pretty challenging. And um, it goes from like um, sort of a little bit of a lighter flavor, at least as far as Flannery O'Connor goes at the beginning of the book, to sort of getting deeper as the book goes on. And it ends with probably four or five Whopper essays about the intersection between creativity, art, Roman Catholicism, and Protestant Christianity. And it's like, for people interested in those subjects, it is not to be missed. It's kind of foundational. And, you know, I'll sort of leave it at that. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that particular volume, or should I just go on? Uh, the only thing I'll say is that I highly, I you know, highly second that endorsement. I'm not, I'm not even a fiction writer per se, but that's a fascinating book. 
And uh, I know it's been discussed on at least one other episode before, maybe more than one. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear what the what you have to pair with it. Yeah, and I'll get to that in a second. It's, uh, Mystery of Manners has a lot of famous quotes, really more famous among writers. But there's that one really funny quote where somebody – I'm going to paraphrase it and mangle it – but where somebody – just to give you an example of Flannery O'Connor's way of thinking, somebody had asked her about what it was like to be kind of a you know a novelist working in the Deep South. And she's writing in the middle of the 20th century. So the specter hanging over everything was William Faulkner. And she made that really funny comment about – you know. She's basically saying like, well, you can't, you know, you can't set out to try to beat William Faulkner in his game. And she said some of the effect of, you know, why would you kind of, you know, stay with your little cart and mule on the train tracks when the Dixie Limited is coming, is barreling down the tracks towards you yeah. <laughs> or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm sure I mangled it, but she had this wry sense of humor and she was very, she was very aware of like what was happening around her in the literary world and, you know, who her sort of progenitors were and, you know, and of her own ability to kind of sort of compete with those writers. She was pretty self-aware, Flannery O'Connor was. Um, but the second volume of essays kind of springboarding off that is another writer I've discussed a lot. I haven't discussed this volume much, though. Um, a Catholic writer who's a foundational, one of my all-time literary heroes, that's Ron Hansen. He's the guy that wrote the novel called Mariette and Ecstasy, which is an episode one about the fiction books that made us. He's a Roman Catholic deacon. He's an author of many novels. He tends to write historical novels, but not always. And he published a volume of essays in the year 2000 called A Stay Against Confusion, which is one of my all-time favorite volumes. And it is a, a little bit kind of, you know, sort of a little cousin or a little brother or something of Mystery and Manners, because Flannery O'Connor definitely had an impact on Ron Hansen. But it, it's uh, it's more in keeping with the variety of the form that we discussed in the intro. Like it touches on a lot of different subjects. Um, and a lot of them are religious or Catholic in nature, but not all of them. So this volume includes, um, for example, an appreciation of a, a, a novelist that you mentioned a couple episodes ago, who was really prominent in the 70s, named John Gardner. He was one of Ron Hansen's fiction teachers at the esteemed Iowa Writers Workshop in the 70s. And so there's an, and he had died. So there's an appreciation of him. There's an article on the an old film from the 20th century called, or an essay, sorry, called Babette's Feast. That's an analysis of that film. There's um, There are analyses of other literary subjects about writing as a Catholic novelist and putting together um, fiction when you have a religious worldview. But then there's an incredible essay of like reportage. It reads like something like Zero Dark Thirty or uh, Black Hawk Down or something like that. But it's about this incident that took place in the, the Central America where these Jesuit priests in the late 80s were murdered by these, uh, you know, um, revolutionaries or um, I'm not, I'm not, the, the right word is eluding me, but like these, uh, you know, like revolutionaries. Guerrilla. Yeah. Yeah. Like guerrillas, like with, with machine guns, they were, they had an ax to grind against ministry down there and they murdered these Jesuits. And there's a, an extremely riveting account of that tragedy and, you know, sort of the, it's almost like a forensic investigation of what happened. 
Um, there's an amazing essay about the Eucharist. If you're a Roman Catholic, just sort of exploring the topic of the Eucharist and, and meant in his life. He writes a really poignant and eloquent essay about the old time prayer called the Anima Christi. And there are other topics in there as well. And I'm just a really big admirer of Ron Hansen. And I thought all of the topics in the book were interesting. Um, and I thought he had just had a way of tackling them that was really um, eloquent and, and effective for me as a reader. And I'll just wrap up. I, I would highly recommend both of these volumes and a stay against confusion is not as well known, but anybody who has a Christian or Catholic outlet or is interested in writing or both would really enjoy that volume of essays. And to wrap it up, I, I, I just have to mention also the publication of that book in 2000, I think late 2000, um, happened to coincide with my last year of graduate school. And it, brought about the occasion of Ron Hansen coming to New York in early 2001 before the attack on the World Trade Center. And that's where the one time in my life I managed to see him and, and hear him read and meet him because he was doing a book tour for this particular volume. So I got to hear him read his about John Gardner, which was called The Wizard. And then he did a question and answer and I talked with him for a while. And I remember vividly, it was one of the kind of the really fun literary fanboy experiences of my life. I bought three copies of the hardcover. I kept one for myself, which he signed. And he said something like, it's, re it's really great to meet you in New York. And I sort of keep that forever. I bought one for you, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. and then also our dad was in the hospital at the time. And he and I had bonded over some around Hanson's work. So I had him sign inscribe a volume for my dad, which I, now have because I inherited it after his death, but he wrote um, our dad like a, a well-wishing message in the book, you know, wishing him a speedy recovery. So that was a really, you know, the book also brought me to that experience, which I just had to mention, but yeah. But um, I know you've read those books and Stay Against Confusion. What do you have to say about it? And then you can move on to your choice. Well, yeah, I, I remember enjoying both of those books, like I like I just said about Flannery O'Connor and, and A Stay Against Confusion. It's been, I think I devoured it as soon as you sent it to me. So that means it's been a long time since I yeah. read it. I haven't right. gone back and, and read it again. But, you know, you just recalling some of the subjects that he takes on that, that you were just, you know, talking about, you know, it's right in, it's my, right in my wheelhouse as well. Um. And, you know, Hanson is a, is a writer that's come up repeatedly on this show. It's definitely, you know, deserving of a, of a wider readership, um, for sure. So I'm glad that he pops up here and there as we uh, continue on with the podcast here. You're still there, right? You can hear me? Yeah. Okay. I heard a noise in the background. I wasn't sure. Um, so those are two great choices. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, swerve a little bit because those two picks – you know, uh, are kind of, you know, have a religious bent to them or, or you know, uh, a Catholic theme. And my first choice for one of my favorite essay collections that I've ever read is about science. But in saying that, it's really about, you know, it touches on philosophy and maybe even theology as well, but in a way. But uh, it's a very uh, speculative, speculative collection. 
what really um, essay collections written by a scientist that I can think of, and it goes all it goes back to 1973. It's a book called The Lives of a Cell, Notes of a Biology Watcher, and it's by Lewis Thomas. Mm-hmm. Now, my first recollection of this book is that is and I've said this to you before Jude but it it was a book that was on our dad's shelf and I remember seeing it you know at various points throughout growing up and I you know at that time I wasn't much of a reader so I didn't I didn't really pick it up until later much later in life but I remember it being on my my dad's shelf which make which makes total sense now after I've read it but um Lewis Thomas is not, not someone who's really talked about a lot, uh, but he was an incredibly an accomplished scientist. You know, he went to Princeton University and then he followed that up by going to Harvard Medical School. And he had a, a very distinguished career in medicine. Uh, he was the head of the pathology department, at New York University Medical School. And then he ended up becoming the dean of the medical school there at NYU and then later at the Yale School of Medicine. So this guy's no slouch. And while, while he was at Yale, he began writing uh, a month, monthly essay called Notes of a Biology Watcher. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the, starting in the early 70s. And then late, a little bit later on, the, the Sloan, Sloan Kettering Institute in New York, which is you know renowned as well. The guy has quite a resume. Um, but he wrote a number of collections of essays that are just about science, but Interestingly enough, and I didn't know this about him until I was, you know, preparing a little bit for this show. He said, uh, you know, the, his style was was influenced by Michel de Montaigne. And there's a quote from, I can't imagine anyone reading Montaigne carefully, paying attention, concentrating on what he has to say without smiling most of the time. And if you've read any Montaigne, I try to describe it a little bit. Um, and if you've read Lives of a Cell, I... I understand that connection because these these essays, all of which are short and fascinating. <laughs> this book is fascinating, even though it was written in the early seventies. Um, you know, topics of interest in science. So it's nowhere near only about medical science. He just kind of you know uh, the essay is called Lives of you know, I have these little descriptions here. They focus on how connected humanity is to nature and how we understand. Thomas argues that even our own bodies are not solely ours, since the other organelles from other organisms. He creates a metaphor for the earth as a giant cell itself, with humans as just one part of a vast system. So, you know, that right out of the gate, these are essays, but they're not, they're not almost like philosophical musings about just different topics that interest him. Like just for a couple other examples, there's one called the music of this sphere. We we evolved to create music and it's about our own, not only our own, but on, you know, who we are as organisms and as, as entities. And it's really interesting. And he talks a lot about Bach. Um, he had, you know, there's there's a huge variety of, of essays in this. It's a short collection, and all the essays are only like three, four pages long. But every single one of them is absolutely fascinating. And uh, like, I'll give you, here's another great example. There's one called An Earnest Proposal. 
And this, the description is, is this. Thomas argues that even though we have the technological advancements to destroy the earth, that we do not know near enough about the world in which we live. This, to solve his problem, he suggests that we should not be able to fire nuclear weapons without being able to explain one living thing fully. The organism that Thomas proposes is the protozoan, and I won't even attempt to say it, but a type of protozoan. There is information known about this protozoan that lives in the digestive tract of Australian termites, but with more study, it could be a model for how our cells developed. It is seen throughout nature that organisms cooperate and progress into more complex forms. We cannot destroy vast amounts of Earth with nuclear until we understand how interconnected we all are. <laughs> and, that, you know, that's, that's just a fascinating, you know, idea, you know, for, a, for an essay. And I got to read the very end of that particular essay. It's about three pages long. And so he's saying, you know, I, I propose that before we fire off any nuclear weapons whatsoever, you know, let's see if we can describe one living organism perfectly well. And if we can't, we need more learning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the last paragraph, it's just, it's really funny. You're going to laugh at this. I take it on faith that computers, although lacking souls, are possessed of a kind of intelligence. The yep. end of the decade, because he says it's going to take about a decade for us using our computers and other technology available to us at the time to understand these organisms. At the end of the decade, therefore, I'm willing to feeding of in all that the feeding in of all the information then available will result after a few seconds of whirring in something like the following message neatly and speedily printed out, quote, request more data. Zero Keats, do not fire. <laughs> so, it's very whimsical, um, but each essay has a point, you know, and very about all different kinds of you know, science, whether it be uh, space or medicine or the insect world. It's just very, very, but it's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. You know, just picking it up again, I'm kind of to start over and read it again. Although he wrote several other, like there's at least one other collection uh, called More Biology no Watcher, and I think two others. It's, it's a really, really interesting book of interest in some yeah. I think you find it really fascinating and it's very whimsical so I, I don't know if it came it's just a great, great book and um, it's always lived in my mind since I read it so I stopped going back by yeah it certainly sounds like you could go back to it yeah, that's really fascinating. I've never read that book. I don't even remember it being on our dad's shelf. It was so interesting when we first discussed this book. I think it was in the 50 Years of Reading episode. Maybe I'm wrong. but um, You're right. I think you're right. But I didn't even remember it being there, you know, which was so interesting in the first place because, you know, it just goes to show you that whole thing about the identical twin brothers. I mean, that book didn't jump out at me. But it jumped out of you and stayed in your mind. So, and then look at the kind of reader you are today. So, you know, and I, to this day, I can't picture it. I don't remember it. But there's something really interesting. And, you know, like like a lot of these other topics that we discussed, there's usually sub buckets, you know, or sub genres. 
And when you have um, hard science people, you know, that really um, are also literary, that really write well and are have the kind of a literary imagination, for lack of a better term, um, that is a whole other interesting category of essay books or nonfiction books that, that those sort of people write. And I'm thinking of, uh, you're still there, right? Okay, sorry, got quiet. Um, I'm thinking of another writer which we could have spoken about today and I don't know for sure that you're not going to, but, um, but although neither one of us is really well-versed this writer, but I'm thinking about Lauren Isley, John. Uh, yeah. Another guy that was like a scientist and like kind of a naturalist who also wrote really interesting essays that were sort of, um, you know, creative with their language and had literary qualities as well, you know. Um, yeah. But this book you're describing, I mean, right from the title, it's very arresting, like lives, plural, of a cell, you know, and it just gives you tips you off that you're going to be looking and <laughs> peering closer into things that you may not have, that you may have overlooked in your entire life before reading this book, you know, and it's sort of right there in the title. And then um, it's impressive to me that this particular writer sounds like, you know, is up to the task of trying to approach some of these uh, biological or scientific or complicated um topics having to do with life forms and do it in a way that's engaging. And as you said, whimsical, you know, I, I suspect that when a scientist thinks that they're being whimsical, it might not be as easy to approach from most other people's, you know, um, perspectives, you know, like a lot of the whim whimsy from a scientist writing may be lost on a layperson such as myself, you know, but yeah. at the same time, uh, it just would require a particular talent to approach some of these subjects and make it interesting, engaging, and even funny. So like, that sounds like a really interesting book. I'm uh, sorry I've missed it. I, you know, I, I should have, uh, I should have remembered it from my dad's shelf, but I didn't. It's kind of interesting. So, yeah. yeah, It's a really great book. And again, I, I have to say, like, like you mentioned, it's, they're very well written. Each one is only three or four pages long. So they're very e easy to digest. And I think what comes across the most is, Lewis Thomas's sort of fascination uh, with all aspects of science, not just medical science. You know, like I said, I mean, there are essays in there about space, about computers, about music, about language. And so he just allows himself to just kind of muse. And he does so in a very interesting and, uh, as I said, sort of whimsical way. So I, I found it to be really, really engaging. It's not, it's not technical at all. It's just like kind of more... Uh, just musing on on interesting questions so yeah like i said anybody who has any interest in science at all and and is sort of captivated by you know um scientific discovery i think would find something here but uh we should take this is a good moment to take a break we should take a quick break and then come back and then you can pick it up again okay that sounds good all right we'll be back in a few
All right, Jude. What's your next pick for us? All right. Can you hear me okay? Yep. All right. So my next collection, John, is veering in a different direction away from the Catholic, Christian, religious. Um, more of a pure essay collection, I guess, in the Montana sense that you brought up. And it's a book that I'm earlier, you know, that I was reading right now. And it's called Orphans. And it was written by a, a man named Charles D'Ambrosio. Um, this is kind of an obscure collection. This is somebody who really is not really well known, except among writer types, I guess I would say. And, and, and further than that, this version of the book, which is the one that I'm sort of vouching for, I don't even think it's still in print. So the first, um, the essay collection called Orphans that I'm speaking of was published in 2004 by a very small um, publishing house called Clear Cut Press. And it's like this little tiny paperback volume. Um, it's all, it's like a little square, about, you know, four inches. And um, I got it out of the library. I, I don't remember where I first heard about Charles D'Ambrosio. Um, I think I had heard of him. And then you gave me, he, he's known for, he has two collections of short stories. And as far as I know, two essay collections. And that's all he's uh, produced since, you know, like the early 2000s. Now, you gave me a volume of a short stories called The Dead Fish Museum, um, which I have and I've read. And I really would like to read that again. I don't remember it well at all, but I still have the volume. I'd like to read that one again. He has another story collection called The Point. And then he had published this essay collection called Orphans in 2004. And then <coughs> later, he um, published another essay book that as far as as i remember and understand is kind of he kind of absorbs if not all a lot of the essays that were in the book orphans and this small printing from the small press and then there were some additional essays that he had written in subsequent years that were captured in a new volume which is called loitering and then i gave you that volume in one of one year for our birthday and so but all those books kind of come out sometime between the beginning of this millennium and like, you know, 10 years ago, as far as I know, he hasn't come out with another volume since then. The only other thing I really know about him now is that he is a member still, as far as I know, of the faculty of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is probably the most famous, you know, um, graduate writing program program in the United States. So that's who Charles D'Ambrosio is. And this is one of those essay collections, John. I read it probably seven or eight years ago. I heard about it somewhere. I had read the book of stories. I was absolutely fascinated and entranced by this book, but I can't even really explain why. This is one of those types of essay collections that it the subject matter in the book varies. It veers all over the place. So this guy was born in the West. He's from Seattle. There's one essay called Seattle 1974, which is basically just about a younger version of himself as a reporter wandering around the city of Seattle, trying to find traces of the culture there. It's kind of a weird essay, but then the book goes on to a, a whole wide variety of different subjects. There was a scandalous news story in the mid 2000s about a school teacher named Mary Kay Letourneau 
you may remember that name, who had slept with a male student that was like 13 and was put on trial and put in jail. And there's an essay about that case, which seems to really seems to fall down on the side of Mary Kay Letourneau, you know, rather than uh, the societal judgment upon her for sleeping with this 13 year old. Um, But there's another essay about that's called and about modular homes, like homes that are made out of different pieces and sort of mass produced. There's an essay called hell house, which is about this like (laughs) bizarro um, like museum slash weird form of evangelization, this house in Texas that you kind of visit as kind of a campy, you know, weird Americana horror museum, but it's really supposed to sort of be warning you about the pitfalls of sin, basically. Oh, yeah. And and depicting all the different ways that you can suffer eternal torment for your ways, you know. And the essayist Charles Ambrosio goes through this house three or four times and writes an essay about that. He writes an essay about this roundly failed um, environmental experiment called Biosquat. And then at the end of the book, I remember reading this essay and I was actually in the middle of it when I, you know, got, uh, got up to today. There's an essay and I remember really struggling with it. It's a, it's a, just a, a very strange essay. That's about a obscure poem by an obscure poet about this city in Montana called Phillipsburg. The poem is called degrees of gray in Phillipsburg. And so is the essay. And the essay begins with the poem. And then it's an essay about that poem. And, Expressing how Charles D'Ambrosio relates to it. Um, and, you know, you learn through the course of the essays that he's, uh, I think he's one of three brothers, but the other two had committed suicide. And he had had difficulty with depression and drugs. And he's just sort of, you get the impression that this is a guy, at least while he wrote these essays, that was just kind of looking for reasons to hang on to life so it can be really dark you know, at different times. And he makes these comments about his family history. And I'm, John, I'm not even sure what it is, but this essay collection had a huge impact on me. It really lived in my mind. And I thought maybe more than trying to explain it, I'm just going to read very briefly. One is a quote that he throws in there from another writer, but it's in the middle of an essay, the one on Mary Kay Letourneau. But I just thought it he quoted this and the quote itself is so interesting and it says something about the guy that put it in the essay and the quote is very simple it just says the great instrument of moral good is the imagination and that is by percy Blythe shelley the 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 english i have that right the english um romantic poet i think Uh Um, and i just really related to that line as i encountered it the second time reading it the great instrument of moral good is the imagination I think there's something that writers and essayists maybe in particular can really relate to in that statement. But then there's an essay about whaling um, and it's not like Melvillian, although of course it mentions Moby Dick, um, but it has to do with whales and the whaling industry. And I just thought to close out my comments, I would read like a sort of longish paragraph from that essay by Charles Ambrosio. And it's just, shows you what kind of thinker and writer he is and i think it will demonstrate to our listeners kind of this is the appeal of the book kind of the elusiveness and the intrigue of this man's mind and where he takes things and you can tell from this writing style that he's not this is not like hemingway he's not a spare writer 
I would describe as more of kind of a maximalist. So you don't need a lot of context for the paragraph, but um, I'll just read it. It's the, again, the essay is called Wailing and the paragraph goes like this. An encounter with a gray whale is bizarre. And if your first sighting happens unticketed outside the enumerated sanction of a tour, it will seem contextually spooky and saurian. Gray whales don't look especially dirigible. You'd hate to have to park one. They have a lumpy crudeness of design, banged up body and a crimped ugly mouth and a dented snout, color that seems to come from a supply of government surplus paint. And all around, they have an unrefined and ancient and also untrustworthy aspect. They look like a mock-up of the kind of practice animals that God was making in the early days before he hit his artistic stride and started turning out wolves and apes and chipmunks. And they've got, <laughs> and they've got that useless megaton business. I'm sorry, that useless megaton bigness, a gigantism that's pretty dramatic in a circus freak way or like other types of colossi or prodigies. The sheer extravagant enormity of which inspire sublime fascination or wonder or fear, but don't register much at the refined and fragile end of the emotional spectrum that includes the various colors of love or tender or chummy feelings of any sort. I can't myself square 40 tons of whale flesh or even the word blubber with what I know about sweetness and intimacy. They're not ducklings or kittens or puppies or little lambs or fawns or piglets. In fact, their very bulk seems inimical to closeness, to holding and embracing. But maybe the baby freak that I've lately become, I can now only conceive of love in liftable forms as something that you can put your arms around. So <laughs> that's an example of the type of writer Charles D'Ambrosio is. I don't know what it is about his writing, John, but that kind of quality is in all the essays. And I either, I, I'll freely admit, I either didn't understand the essay when I got to the end of it, or I felt like I grasped some of it, but not all of it. But I thought it was a really telling example of this form. And I think the book is riveting. I, I would really recommend, if anyone could even find this small, um, small press edition of Orphans, is, you know, as it was published originally, uh, you wouldn't want to pass it up. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that passage you read, you know, kind of exemplifies what you're talking about. There's just something, I mean, that was an incredible description of a great whale, you know, with, and then, you know, and this is sort of like what we're talking about with essays was there's some beautiful writing in there and descriptive power, you know, mixed in with some great humor, you know, uh, just right. fun, just funny stuff. But then at the end, it kind of touches on, you know, some emotional truths about you know like being able to you know pick up a baby or or something that you can put your arms around you know and that's just in one little passage so that mm -hmm. that's what great essays can do you know that and and there's a unique voice in there that comes through which i think is what you're talking about you you said a couple times i, I don't know what it is but it's it's that unique voice that you you had never encountered before and you probably never will because it's charles d'ambrosio and not anybody else you know, right. Yeah. So to sort of pick up on that, like I'm going to I'm going to take a cue for 
cue from you. I'm, I'm going to double this one up, and I'm just going to highlight two more recent collections of essays that I've read that I think are really worthwhile. Um, one I've already talked about on the show a bit, but I felt I needed to mention it. And it was this book that you gave me called Interior States by a writer named Megan O'Geeblin. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's only a couple of years old. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to go on about it at length because I've already talked about it, but you know, here's someone. And again, I didn't know anything about her, but you know, I just pick you pick up a collection of essays and you just start in on the first piece and, and a good essayist will just grab you. And it, 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 chances are it's a topic that you didn't even know you had any interest in, you know, but all of a sudden you're really riveted by it, you know? And I remember her collection in particular. I mean, there was a way in for us because she's, she lives in the Midwest and we, we, as you said to me, we're a Midwest stock. So I think there may be something interesting there. And then she, you know, came from a uh, sort of a fundamentalist evangelical background. So she wrote as a culture, it's a lot about sort of her growing away from Christian religion. Those are both topics of interest to me. But that's it was just it's one of these questions is just I said before and I'll say it again, just really well written. But you often find like you mentioned uh, the essay on Hell House by D'Ambrosio, and I was thinking, you know, uh, somewhere needs to collect writings about like weird Christian America, you know. That in itself could be a great collection because um, I remember O'Geeblin's book has uh, an essay that, that's about a trip to the Creationist Museum, which I think is somewhere in Tennessee, which is like a whole museum that's that's devoted to you know creationism and the idea that mm. the, the earth is 6,000 years old. So like it's and she describes what it's like going with a troop of students through this museum and it's just it's just incredible <laughs> like you know you know the displays with like little toddlers who are like riding on top of triceratops and stuff like that because you know obviously human beings and dinosaurs must have existed together at one point you know just all <laughs> kinds of all, all sorts of weird stuff but the way you know when you're in the hands of a good writer the way she describes it and the way she sort of relates it to her own upbringing and and what what that says about that and how, how weird it is that there even exists a, a museum dedicated to, you know, creationism. It was just, that was one of, you know, several fascinating essays in that book that jumped out at me. You know, another example is she's got a, an essay called Pure Michigan and it's about living in Michigan basically, but I guess that's their sort of tourist slogan. You actually see it on, if you see a Michigan license plate, says pure Michigan on it. And she kind of goes into the whole story of how that slogan came to be and what it's supposed to represent and why it sort of fails, <laughs> you know, and it, you know, I'm not from Michigan. I didn't know anything about what their state slogan was. I barely even know my own state slogan. I don't think I do, you know, but I was really taken by that essay. So that's, you know, that's a great book. Um, one I would highly recommend. There's another book that, you know, I, I thought about when you were talking about D'Ambrosio, too, because this is a writer, and you and I talked about this, who he made a big splash with this book of essays, which are really sort of like a collection of his long-form journalism, basically. And he's a writer named John Jeremiah Sullivan. 
And back in 2011, he published this book, and it's called Pulphead. Mm. And Pulphead was a term that he picked up out of Norman Mailer. And I don't know if it was a widely used slang or what, but, you know, um, he describes Pulpheads as, as writers that sort of freelance writers that write for, that do pieces for magazines. And so that's why he calls it that. But this is just, it's a very, really well-written and eclectic collection of just all these pieces that are about just totally different subjects. Like there's a great profile about Axl Rose, the singer of Guns N' Roses, trying to make a comeback, you know, long after they kind of hit their, their peak as a band. He kind of gets into what his life was like growing up in Lafayette, Indiana. Really interesting piece. Um, he's got a, you know, there's a piece about, you know, former stars who used to be on MTV's The Real World. And he kind of tracks down some of these people and kind of, you know, they sort of have a, a secondary career of just making appearances, literally as being, you know, so-and-so from Real World season 10 or whatever. And he kind of follow some of these people around and, and they just have bizarre lives. And it's just really, again, I didn't even watch MTV's real world, but the, but the piece is really funny and interesting. Um, and then he's got a more personal essay. That's about his brother apparently was in a, was in a band and they were rehearsing and he was electrocuted by his own amplifier. And um, he ended up. Wow. And when he came, he spent, there were like three months where he was like a completely different person. And then it just, he just changed back to the way he used to be, but he doesn't recall any of the three months at all, but everyone else does. And he was like a totally different person. So <laughs> wow. he kind of, just he, he recounts that experience and how, how, how bizarre it was to live with this person who looked like his brother, but was somebody totally different. So whatever, somehow the electricity mastered this personality or his brain wiring, it just kind of like rewired his brain, but then it grew back. It's very, very strange. Um, and then um, lots, the last essay in the book is, is about his, his house was used. Also main character in the TV show called One Tree Hill. And so he describes what it's like to like live in a house where they're filming and he and his family were like, and he had sequestered to the upstairs while they were shooting scenes downstairs. And he just describes this whole, what, what it was like, <laughs> you know, what it was like to be raised, like have a newborn baby. And yet you couldn't go downstairs because they're filming a popular TV show. And then for years and years and years after the show kind of ended, you know, he says at least several people come by and take pictures of the house or want to want to talk to us. It's just very, you know, just really weird stuff like that. But that it's such a good book because he has such an interesting writing style, and he's very—he's also very well read. He's smart and great example of what uh, you know a modern essay collection can be. You don't even, you know, something about if the writer is capable enough, they can draw you into whatever they're writing about, and then you—you really—you feel like you spend. I'll say it this way. When After I read Sullivan's book, I felt like, you know, I just spent like a lot of time with just a really interesting person who's done some really interesting things. And uh, it was fascinating, you know? So that essay collection can, can do, and it can also, you know, sometimes introduce you to, to 
ideas or subjects that you had no idea about before, but you know, you realize that are pretty damn interesting. So that's just, those are two more recent examples of books that I would. Yeah, those two books, John, like I, I'm not, so I haven't read interior States, but I have read pulpit. Uh, you gave it to me because you were, you had either read the book or had heard about the book and were impressed by it. And, uh, and I read that book too. And it, it was fascinating, you know, like, and both of those books seem like really good example of kind of at least the modern state of this particular form. And, and like we've been saying, like a, a good volume, like those two or like some of these other ones, like, you know, they, it, it can be really satisfying as a reader in some strange way. And I think part of it is like, you know, we've been talking about sort of the elusive quality of like the, I guess what the, what the writer is trying to achieve or, you know, like you're, you sort of, you know, there's this uh, sort of forever out of reach quality to it, but I think part of it, and I'm not going to put this in a really eloquent way, but I, I, a part of it to me is I think the reader, and it's again, sort of unique to this form. It's a little bit like this with short stories, but it's a different type of thing, you know, and I think it's um, maybe it's just because it has to do with actual reality you know, this world as it is versus an imagined world, or I'm, I'm not quite sure, but you get this sense that you're, there's a sense of kind of, ha a, sort of almost participating in the quest or the, the, you know, need for discovery that the writer themselves is undertaking. Yeah. And so you kind of go on the journey with the writer and maybe the writer doesn't get all the way there, like we were saying, and you don't quite get all the way eat. The, the way they are either but it's something about the essay is almost more about the journey than the destination you know and and maybe you could say that about any book i'm not i'm not sure but you guess you get the sense of it with a really well crafted grouping of essays you know um that there's just this process of discovery that you feel kind of like um what's the word i want like uh you're kind of it's like it's symbiosis or something or like you know it's parasitic almost like you're like you're, yeah. you're kind of a part of it. And I'll just, and before I bring up my next one, I just, it's, it's like a brief segue and I promise I won't go on too long, but I, I can just relate to it as an essay writer myself, you know, like um, it's interesting we're doing this episode because it's timed with, I'm about to put out a new book myself. That's a collection of book reviews and essays. Um, and there, I, I guess I would say there's probably an even mix of straight up reviews, but and of essays in the book I'm, I'm putting out, but I know in, in writing some of the essays that are in there, you know, it's this process of trying to find out even what it is you're writing about. And I remember just as a brief example, like in, in the previous essay collection that I put out, it was a book called The Intercessions and the title essay was called The Intercessions. And it began, and I'm not saying it's a great essay or anything, but it just kind of started with me thinking a lot about ways that I could or could not communicate with our dad because he had died, you know? And yeah. I was starting to think about the topic in general of people finding some way to be in almost in touch or in, in communion with somebody they had lost. And the essay was about that. And I remember getting to the end of the essay and I was telling the story about, and I'm not going to relate the whole thing. I was telling a story about this little handheld rosary that belonged to my dad and I had somehow gotten it after his death and 
I lost it for a while. And then I was thinking about him and I, it sort of popped up again, like on my desk and it was sitting there while I happened to be thinking about him and I grabbed it and I held on to it. And the end of the essay describes this. And I remember getting to the end of that essay and the, the last line of the essay, I don't even remember my own words specifically, but it says something to like, you know, you can draw your own conclusions, but as for me, I know my dad was there. And I remember writing that line because, and I was like, I didn't even know I was going to say that, you know, like yeah. it was just kind of born out of the process of writing about that topic. All I was trying to do was think about, can we get in touch with people that have died or not? I have no idea. <laughs> and I have right. less of an idea after writing that essay, but I remember writing the essay and getting to that line. I said, you can say what you want. This is basically what I write. You can say what you want. As for me, I know my dad was there. Now I, you know, I have no idea if he was there. You know, like, that was just, that was what came upon me at the time. And it kind of, and my point is it came out of the writing of the essay that revelation, whatever you want to call it, came upon me through that process. And readers of essays that are really well-written can sort of be a part of that discovery is what I'm trying to say, you know? So, and you get it in Pulped a lot and you get it in a lot of these books that we're talking about, so. I mean, that was kind of a tangent, so I apologize. No, but I think that's, I think that's right. I, Sullivan is, was very, he says kind of like very explicitly, like at the beginning of some of these essays, he's like, well, you know, uh, this is an, not, not quite this explicitly, but this is an essay in which I, you know, decided to dive down this particular rabbit hole and it didn't end up where I thought it was going to go. So, you know, he basically invites you to come along with him. You know, and you and it is it's kind of like you feel like that it's a process of discovery, both for the writer and the reader. And it's really interesting to kind of tag along. Yeah, know, for, for that for that journey. So um, what would hey, what's real quick? Might as well plug it. What's the name of the book of uh, essays that you have coming out? It's it's not out yet, but people can. Oh, yeah. For no. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, cheap, cheap plug here, but yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm excited about the book. The book is called the cathedral of imagination, which is a title of an essay I wrote for silver sage magazine after the cathedral in Paris burned down. And it's a collection of uh, book reviews I've written for that magazine and essays I've written for that magazine and other essays I've written that did not get published. So um, it's coming out on May 1st, which is coming up oh, quickly. Wow. Yeah. And um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a good collection. I'm uh, I'm excited about it. But yeah. But thanks for asking. Yeah, that's uh, listeners can keep an eye out for that. I'm sure you'll be able to find it on Amazon where you can find other books that uh, Judah's written. But, you know, that's enough stalling for you. What, <laughs> and we're kind of you know, we got to keep an eye on the clock. But is, I'm sure there's at least one other book that you want to wanted to mention here. I have two more books, uh, but this, the one I'm going to mention now, I think I can do quickly as I keep saying, but um, so we're going back 55 years now and you're going to say, oh my Catholics again. Uh, yes and no, but the volume I wanted to mention that really has had a big impact on me um, is a, a book of essays written by Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk that we talked about before. Um who is famous for his autobiography called The Seven Story Mountain and many other books about monasticism, contemplation, Roman Catholicism, etc. But this volume is from late in his life because he died in 1968. 
this volume came out in 1967, so 55 years ago. And at this stage of his literary career, I would say Merton was always writing about spiritual topics and Catholicism and other religions, but he was also branching out into a, into the world, you know, sort of the modern world um, from the cloister um, or from this hermitage that he wrote out of. And this book called Faith and Violence is very much engaged with the, his time. Um, but like I said, it's 55 years ago. Um, and it is, it's basically a collection of essays. It, the subtitle is a little misleading. It says Christian teaching and Christian practice. But these essays are about some of the very live wire issues of his day, of his, late in his life. And I'm talking about Vietnam, um, nuclear war, um, uh, racism in the United States, and uh, resistance and protest in general. I would just say to listeners, anybody who's interested in those topics from any perspective, if you're interested in war from a Christian perspective, if you're interested in protest against injustice in general, if you're interested in racism and the fight, the struggle against racism, or you're interested in integrating different religions into um, society and how they can relate and not relate, this is an incredible book of writing. Uh, you might be tempted to say, well, it's from the 60s, you know, it's old. Uh, Merton was on fire in this book, and he wrote with extreme eloquence and very direct and blunt fashion about those issues. Um, it's, it, but it gets Merton, as with all books by Merton, it's a little bit challenging. He can be very uh, intellectual and theological. The whole part one of this book is called Toward Distance, and it's about the, sort of the intermingling of those exact subjects, like being uh, sort of... Uh, you know, into social resistance and mingling it with uh, like sort of a deep theology. But as the book goes on, he gets into more timely subjects. And I won't comment much more at length. Again, I, I decided I would just read uh, one fairly short paragraph and then a, a shorter paragraph that'll give you an idea of the type of writing he was doing here and how articulate and clear of a writer Thomas Merton was. And again, you don't really need the context this this is from, the first one is from an essay called The Hot Summer of 67. And if you listen to this paragraph, I think you can see that it's, although it was written 55 years ago, it may have some salience in our current day and age. So it goes, the American idea, ideology of freedom and democracy is now lar largely discredited everywhere, even among a significant portion of Americans. The fervent celebration of American ideals by congressmen and publicists is useful, mainly for bolstering up their own morale. And others, even in those who want to agree, this incantation raises more and more serious doubts. Can we possibly be sincere about these grandiose concepts? Do we believe that they are likely to be used in really constructive ways to solve our problems? Or are they going to become fanatic, fanatical shibboleths to justify an armed and violent reaction on the part of white society against the attacks leveled against it. In other words, is freedom simply going to become the copyrighted trademark of the state's rights types, the KKK, the CIA, or the Pentagon? In other words, will freedom fly? I'm sorry. In other words, will freedom simply mean armed repression? What I am saying is this. Our American ideals and principles can retain their credibility 
only insofar as they are capable of radical adaptation to this crisis and creative response to a turbulent time that is heavy with unimagined possibilities, both for growth and for pathological decay. Slogans are not enough, and slogans backed up with machine guns and napalm are not inspiring much real belief. So that's one paragraph from Faith and Violence by Thomas Merton. And then I did want to read one other paragraph, a shorter one, John. Okay. And the subject matter will be obvious. And I apologize. Thomas Merton was born in 1915. And he was writing, you know, towards the end of his life, but he lived largely in the 20th century. And so he uses the term Negroes, which was much more acceptable at that time. So I apologize for the term Negro, but I think you'll get the point of this paragraph anyway. As Christians, we must remember that in Christ, there is no meaning to racial divisions. There's no white and black in Christ. But if Christianity is being discredited in the eyes of Negroes, that does not dispense us from our duty to be authentic Christians towards the Negro, whether he likes us or not. It is not our job to convince him that Christianity is true or genuine, but to live up to what we ourselves profess to believe so that we may not be judged by God for a mere lip service that has, as we now begin to realize too late, reached the proportions of worldwide scandal. So that gives you an idea of what Thomas Merton was writing about. He was an incredible writer. In my opinion, he got stronger and stronger up until the time of his tragic death in 1968. But if you have any interest in protest, protest, resistance, faith, violence, uh, or Christian theology, um, I think this is an indispensable book for you to read. So, well, Thomas Merton was on. I had a list going of of great essay essayists that I I knew I wasn't going to get to, and maybe you wouldn't either. Um, but it has to have to at least be mentioned as kind of masters of, of the form. And Thomas Merton was on that list. Um, along with many others, kind of older and more contemporary, such as E.B. White, the great writer E.B. White, um, uh, G.K. Chesterton from England, C.S. Lewis, yeah. and a little bit more of our time, um, David Foster Wallace, who unfortunately mm -hmm. is way too early, but, you know, Consider the Lobster and a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again are two, you know, really famous essay collections from from our time and also Zadie Smith, the, you know, the kind of novelist and literary critic has written right. a number of really sharp essays. And there's so many others, um, George Saunders, you know, I mean, we could go on and on, but uh, Merton was certainly on that list. It just an incredible mind and writer. And yeah, unfortunately there's still so much in that collection, faith and violence that, you know, resonates today. And, sort of tragically uh, is still relevant today, right. you know, um, but certainly uh, I'm really glad that he came up and he has a number, you know, conjectures of, of a guilty bystander is another great titled essay collection he has. And he had many others, but as an essayist, essayist, he was, you know, first rate, really sharp, but that's a, that's a great pick because of the relevance of some of those topics, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really, a, it's astounding that, how much of that is salient and applicable to the, the present moment. It's just, it's heartbreaking really, but it, you know, um, that there's some value though, in going back and reading some of these great essays from other times, because they can remind you of things that, you know, we just really have a tough time 
getting around, you know, as a society. That's right. Um, so did you get through both? Did you get through what you wanted to get through there with that segment? There was one other I was going to mention, but I can just do it in a, in a quick way at the end, if you want to go on. Um, why don't you go ahead and mention it? And then um, I have two other, well, I have lots of other collections that I would love to mention, but I have two others that are highlight and then we'll just maybe touch on a few by title. Okay. The, the last one I was going to bring up and I don't know it as well. I've read it once and I read it fairly recently, but I thought it was notable and this kind of stayed with me in some way. And I also have a lot of respect for the writer, even though I don't know her work very well. Uh, her name is Ann Patchett. She's one of uh, the more renowned sort of contemporary American novelists that are out there today. She's another product of the Iowa Writers Workshop from around the same time as people like Ron Hansen, T.C. Boyle, the 70s. Um, she's famous for writing many novels. Probably the, the most famous one is a book called Bel Canto, which is uh, which I've read, which is I think is kind of a strange book. I you know didn't love it, but it's a it certainly has a fascinating premise. It's it's a book about I think it's set in Peru or a South American country where there's these people are attending a birthday party for a, a very rich man. And there's a world renowned opera singer there. And these terrorists come in in the first three or four pages of this novel and take everybody hostage. And the rest of the book is about this strange eclectic collection of people from all different parts of the world. There's a main character from Japan who are being held by these terrorists in the company of a famous opera singer. And uh, it, you know, it's a very interesting premise and engaging book. I thought it was kind of weird, but anyway, Ann Patchett has also written a couple um, essay collections, and one that I read not too long ago. I would put this in the contemporary category, maybe with uh, Megan O'Gleblin and um, John Jeremiah Sullivan. Although it, the subjects aren't aren't as varied and sundry, but the book is called "This Is the Story of a Happy Marriage." And it's basically like it's got a lot of different subjects in it, but the main themes are um, our marriage, obviously, and then uh, writing and creative writing and some of her experiences as a novelist and creative writer. And then uh, there's a few essays about she's also well known for having established an independent bookstore, I think, in Tennessee with another well-known writer and her adventures in selling books and trying to stay afloat as an independent bookstore, you know, doing battle with the big chains. Um, I thought it was a really wonderful collection of essays. It had some very interesting, very interesting pieces about creative writing. She's one of those writers who every, every one of her novels is very different from the other. So there's one that's kind of set in the jungle. There's another one that's about a politician called Run. Um, her first novel is well-known. It was called the, Sa the Patron Saint of Liars. And she's somebody who's just kind of learned by doing and has a real voice and authority on the craft of writing. And I, she also has some really moving essays about having been through a really damaging first marriage and then figuring out what marriage is really all about with her second marriage. And there's some good essays on marriage in this book as well. So that's another collection of essays I would really recommend called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage by Ann Patchett. Wow, that's... that's uh... That's a, that's a great pick because it's totally different than anything else that we've mentioned today. So, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're coming at it from all angles here. Well, that's good stuff. Well, I, you know, there's so many other books I would love to talk about. Um, I guess there's two others I'll mention. Like I said, 
One is a collection of essays that I have. This is more of an anthology, but it's on my shelf. And like, I've often thought this and the more I pick this book up and kind of, I'll tend to just pick it up sometimes and just read one essay from it. And the more I do that, the more I'm like, man, like every reader should have a copy of this, of this book on their shelves. Cause it's just such an incredible content compendium. And unfortunately it's just from America, but it's a book, it's a book, you know, there's a series called the best American series. And the, every year they put out the best American short stories, the best American travel writing, the best American nature writing. I'm not even sure who puts it out. Probably one of the major publishers, but, um, around the turn of the, of the last out a collection, the best American essays of the century. So it's a collection of, uh, American essays from the entire 20th century. And it's just a treasure trove of incredible writing, American writing, you know, and each one, there's one, they're chosen by year, you know, so it begins in 1901, Mark Twain with an essay called Corn Pone Opinions, which is hilarious. Uh, but I mean, when you look through the, the table of contents, you see why sometimes I'll just pick this up off the shelf and just pick one at random and read have um you know w e e b dubois henry adams john muir writing about nature jane adams t.s Eliot, ernest Hemingway, zora neale hurston h.l mencken f scott fitzgerald richard wright uh richard wright the ethics of living jim crow an autobiographical sketch i mean robert frost e.b white langston hughes on on blues and jazz Rachel Carson, who we mentioned before, essay called The Marginal World, James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son, Eudora Welty, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from Birmingham Jail, Tom Wolfe, Vladimir Nabokov, N. Scott Momaday, the, um, a Native American writer, an essay called The Way to Rainy Mountain, Michael Hare, writing about Vietnam, John McPhee, Maxine Hong Kingston, Joan Didion, Annie Dillard, William Manchester, Stephen Jay Gould, John Updike, Saul Bellow. I mean, it's just an incredible collection of American yeah. on, you know, all kinds of topics. You know, even uh, Lewis Thomas, who I mentioned earlier, his, his essay, Alive, The Lives of a Cell, is in here from 1971. And it kind of goes chronologically. You know, the last oh, 1997, an essay called Graven Images. Um, 1989, Stephen Jay Gould writes about you know, evolution and baseball in, a, in an essay called The Creation Myths of Cooperstown. So, nice. I mean, this is just a, uh, it's just a treasure trove. And I've picked it up and read various essays. Some of them we've all heard of, like Letters from, a Letter from Birmingham Jail, although that read in and of itself. Like prophecy, you know. But some yeah. of them you know, we maybe have never heard of, uh, but you could you could pick this up and just read any one of them and get a lot out of it. So that's a that's a super high recommendation for me. If you could find like a used copy of that, you know, it's a big thick collection. But wow, I mean, you, you it's just one of these books that if you you take it and read it for fifteen minutes, you're going to like be a better person just for having read it. You know, right? The other thing, like you know, we talk about in. For me, this is kind of wrapping this up and we can maybe do a speed round or whatever books we would have liked to have mentioned. But 
you talk about the essay as a general category and I realize, you know, but there's so many subcategories in that, that we could do a separate show on almost like you've touched on one of them, the literary essay. So if you're, you're really into reading or writing, you know, I'm sorry, my dog's going to be barking in the background. Um, hopefully you won't hear that too much, but if you're really, if you're really into reading and writing, you know, literary essays can be very rich and a lot of fun to read, but you know, virtually every art form has its own kind of, you know, essay sub subgenre. I mean, there's lots of great writing about music, right? Um, there right. are travel essays. I wrote a, a great book of travel essays that I remember reading. It was from Dennis Johnson called Seek. Um, and, you know, there's, all, uh, there's also a book that I've always wanted to read, and it's a collected travel essays of summer. And I've actually never read any of his famous novels, but, you know, apparently he traveled all over the world. And when you have a writer of that caliber who has a collected collected a collection of travel essays, it's probably good reading, you know. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, if you're into films and movies, you know, there are there, there are essays about films. And I, and I want to quickly recommend one in that category. And this is a little bit of an audible for me, dude. I'm not sure I even mentioned this to you, but. One of the most fascinating essay collections I've read in the last several years is from Tim Shepard, who we have talked about before on the podcast. Uh, we had dedicated a whole episode to him um, quite a while, quite a while ago, but we did one of our Dealer's Choice episodes on Tim Shepard. Right. I don't think that the book came up very much in it, but he's got a, a one of his most recent books. Actually, it's called "The Tunnel at the End of the Light," which is an incredible title. But uh, the subtitle is Essays on Movies and Politics. And he's just got about 10 pieces in here that are about well-known movies and he relates them to different political themes. And they're just fascinating. Like I just, it's a great book. Um, I've never, I, I've never really heard much discussion about it, but I thought it was very insightful, not only on the movies themselves, but on, you know, kind of what it means to be an American, sort of American politics in general. But just to run down, you know, one of them is about the movie Badlands, a Terrence Malick movie. Um, there's one uh, that contrasts Rowan, Rowan Polanski's movie The Pianist with Steven Spielberg's uh, Schindler's List and how those movies are different. Um, no Regrets, Goodfellas. And He's got a, uh, an essay about Aguirre, The Wrath of God from Werner Herzog, who, who's mm -hmm. come up on the show before. Um, the Third Man and the 2004 Republican Ticket. <laughs> uh, Babette's Feast comes up here, which is, uh, you mentioned before, from Ron Hansen's book. Jim, Jim uh, Shepard and those two guys are friends, also writes about it. Saving Private Ryan and the Politics of Deception. He's got a book in here about, uh, he's got an essay in here about Nosferatu, the film, the great, great silent vampire film. And the, subject, and the subject to one of Jim Shepard's novels, by the way. He wrote a novel right. called Nos Nosferatu. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, Chinatown and the Tunnel at the End of the Light. And so there's a whole piece in here about Chinatown, which is one of the darkest movies ever made, but it's great. And then, you know, fascinatingly, he's got a, the last chapter is about a Danish thriller called The Vanishing. I think it's Danish. But it's a, it's a great movie. It's a really really tense thriller uh, about a woman who gets kidnapped. And uh, so he's got a piece on that. But this is this is a really, if you're into movies at all, 
this is a great book from Jim Shepard, The Tunnel at the End of the Light. So I wanted to get at least one sort of like, uh, you know, book of essays that's about a certain art form. You know, if you're a writer like you are, you tend to, to gravitate towards literary essays. Um, since movies are a great interest for me, I, I thought this book was a lot, both a lot of fun and really uh, enlightening. So, yeah. That kind of brings us to the end of our, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot more that we want to discuss, I'm sure. What are, what are some books that we didn't get to, but that you would want to, at the very least, recommend that people check out? Well, I'm going to give you some books. I can't recommend them because I never read them. Okay. But there's a little list I made of books I really want to read that I, uh, and at least one of them you have read, so I know you can vouch for it. But they're, I guess I would say these are essay books I want to get to because I've heard about how good they are. So I just want to mention them really quick, you know, um, I guess in an alternate life, I would have had read these and be able to mention them on this podcast also. Um, first one on my list was called seek by Dennis Johnson. You brought it up. Um, I have that on my shelf. It's a travel essay by, but he's just one of the, one of my all time favorite writers, Dennis Johnson. And I've never read that book. I'd really like to read it. Um, you also mentioned this writer, but I know he's, a favorite among writers is one of the great um, masters of this form. And his name was E.B. White. And he was most famous for his children's books, right? The Trumpet of the Swan and uh, Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. Right. But he was also famous and essayist. And he has, uh, I have his book collected essays on the shelf and you gave it to me um, in hardcover, but I haven't read it yet. I really wanted to read that for this episode. Couldn't get there. And then uh, there's two books I would really like to read that I would think would be worth anyone's time by somebody named Chloe Wofford, better known as Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, of course, is a Nobel Prize winner, and she has a, at least two volumes of essays that I know are really well-known and renowned. One is called Playing in the Dark, and the other one is called The Source of Self-Regard. I think she might have at least one more. I've never read her essays, but I really uh, wish I had. So I want to get to them. And then the last one, John, there's one essayist who is also a fiction writer who's arguably more famous for his essays, except his most famous book is a is a novel. Um, but I don't think either one of us has ever read read this essayist as an essayist. Talking about the the great and late writer from Italy named Umberto Eco. He was very renowned as an essayist, and he has many volumes of essays and nonfiction. Um, but there are three that I think would be really fascinating to read. One is called Six Walks in the Fictional Woods, which is about different books of fiction. Um, there's a famous essay collection he put out in the 90s called How to Travel with a Salmon and other essays. And then lastly, how about this title? There's an essay collection he wrote called <laughs> I mean just how wild would this be Kant and the Platypus Essays on Language and Cognition <laughs> so that <laughs> so that I you know I think he might be a real undiscovered gem I, as far as I know both of us have not read him as an essayist except uh, it was a small book on, I think we both read him about belief, called Belief or Non-Belief in which he debated a uh, a Catholic cardinal on yeah. religion because Umberto Eco was uh, not religious. 
that book, but um, so I wanted to mention him because I know he's a he was very renowned for writing uh, great essays, but I've never read any of them. So that rounds it out for me. What about you? Oh man, and so many. There's so many great picks there. I didn't even. I I didn't. I don't remember any of those Tony Morrison essay collections. So that's interesting for me. Fucking there, but um, there's so many writers we didn't get to that I would love to talk about. I and mean, there are two two essay collections by women that I deeply love, and I wish they were on my list. I did not get to them, but I have to meddle. It's called The Solace of Open Spaces, and it's by Gretel Ehrlich. And um, not a lot of people, you know, not a ton of people would know about that one, but she's a woman who moved from New York City to Wyoming. Again, you know, probably read it because of my interest in Wyoming, which I've mentioned before. Um, but she learns how to live in Wyoming and eventually moves there and married there. But she lost a dear friend of hers and she was trying to heal lost. And so she writes these beautiful essays about learning how to live in a very harsh landscape, which Wyoming is. I know there's an incredible essay in that. I remember that's about the winter in Wyoming and how harsh it is. I remember she describes um, somebody like a neighbor or somebody in her community who, who uh, literally froze to death in mid stride about 60 yards from their own back door because they just couldn't make it last, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like negative 60, negative 70 in the winter. And if you're out there, you better be prepared. Um, but uh, so she writes very interestingly about the landscape out there, but uh, that's just, the writing is beautiful. And if you've ever spent any time out there, it really kind of, uh, I just found that to be a very uh, kind of poetic collection. And also speaking of poetic, one of my favorite poets of all time, Mary Oliver, doesn't have a lot of essay collections, but there's one fairly recent. There's some some of her prose pieces were collected in a book called Upstream, and just every single one of them is gorgeously written and full of insights. I wish I had more time to kind of read from those, but I don't. But it's just an incredible book, and it, you know, if you know anything about her poetry, you won't be surprised that her prose writing is, is just as beautiful and insightful. So I, I really love that book. There's a number of other, you know, essayists I would have loved to have gotten to C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers has a great book of collected essays and pieces called God in the dock. Um, GK Chesterton, the great English Catholic writer, because he wrote for various newspapers for many, many decades, he wrote, get this, he wrote over 7,000 essays. <laughs> that's, that's just astounding. <laughs> and I think, you know, they, you know, he had a daily column. So, you know, they kind of include that in there, but he would literally write about, we talked about how essays are, are fun. Cause they, you know, you can just write, pick a topic of interest and write about it. And he wrote about everything. You know, from like wine and cheese to like, uh, you know, various forms of governments and economics and personalities. Just just incredible. He has one of it, one of my favorite books of his is a collection of essays called What's Wrong with the World, which is just it's still it was written over over 100 years ago, I think, or just under 100 years ago, but still very relevant, in my opinion. Fascinating book of essays called The Memory Chalet. You might not even recognize or remember this one by a writer named no. Tony Jute. 
J-U-D-T, and he was a, a writer who was um, losing his memory. And what he did was he kind of like, it's, it's hard to describe, but he sort of built this memory house in his own mind in order to try to preserve what he could. And he called it the Memory Chalet because he lived in Switzerland. And it's a number of very moving pieces about that process in connections. But uh, there's a beautiful piece about living in Switzerland at the end of it, which I really loved. Um, incredible essayist. Uh, uh, there are so many others, and I've mentioned some of them already. Um, but I I'll kind of cut it off there because we need to. But uh, we've tried to give you, you know, a good smattering of books that you can check out if you're interested in any of these topics but again it's just such a a rich way to read i find if you're in the hands of a, of a writer who knows what they're doing it's just it's kind of a way to you know explore the world from your own armchair is to pick up a good essay and read about something that you know nothing about and kind of see where it leads you so we will leave it there let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and kind of wrap the show up talk briefly about what we're reading next and i'm going to let you tease episode 49 Okay, let's do it. Do you know? Happen to know what you're going to be reading next? Book you, your the current uh, collection of essays that you've been reading. I don't know if you're going to finish it, but um, what's up next for you? I am going to finish it because uh, I like it a lot. And then my next book is uh, like a complete curveball. I have been sitting on it. It's on my list of books I wanted to take on this year, but I don't even think I've really mentioned it to you. It's a book that's been on my. Uh, at least my long list to give to you for, oh gosh, I, I mean, I've had it on there off and on for years. Um, but I've never read this writer. I don't think you have either. It's an English writer by the name of Paul Northfield, I believe is his name. No, no, I'm wrong. Excuse me. Paul Kingsnorth is his name. Paul Kingsnorth. And okay. the book, the book is called The Wake. And it's going to be quite a challenge. It's the first of a trilogy about a certain region of England, but that trilogy spans, I think, over a thousand years. Um, the first book takes place around, I, I want to say around the, the time of the first millennia in England, so around the year 1000. And it's, and I don't know much about it except that it's written. How about this? I, I think of, <laughs> I think I may have bitten off more than I chew. I don't know. This book, it's been on my radar a long time. It was written in a, experimental old English style prose language. So it doesn't, it doesn't have much uh, punctuation and it's also all, almost all the words are unrecognizable until you like kind of look at them and you have to piece together <laughs> what's going on in the, in this story. And it's, I think it's about Vikings and it's written <laughs> in this really old 
uh, prose style that I believe the writer kind of concocted himself based on ancient manuscripts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's called The Wake, and it's a and it's about this one particular. And then that the uh, set I forget the name. I should have done more research, but there's two other volumes. One of them I believe is set in the future, and the other one is like um, several several centuries forward. Uh, I want to say it's called Alexandria. Um, but I don't remember the details of it. But anyway, I'm going <laughs> to read this book to wake and see if I can. I'm really curious to see because I was very fascinated by it. I was really curious. To, I'm really curious to see if I can figure it out, make, make heads or tails of it. And if my mind adjusts to it, etc. So that's my next book. I'm sure you didn't see that coming. So um, what's yours? No, and I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to say goodbye. It's been a rich, a rich life, you know, being uh, roommates and stuff like that. Because um, you ain't gonna make it through that. Uh, no, but I've, I've never, I've never even heard of those books. So that you know, sounds fascinating. Good luck there. <laughs> um, I, I'm still kind of f- figuring out in my mind what I'm gonna read next. But I think it's gonna be. So you and I, have to, we'll just do this on air. Why not? You and I have talked about how. Not our next episode, but in two episodes, we we may decide. Well, let 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 me just say this, dude. I won't I won't tease it quite yet. But we talked about uh, a recent book from one of our favorite writers uh, in, in an episode or two, and I'm going to go back and read her latest novel in preparation for that discussion but i that's all i'll say right now because hopefully our readers will find out about that in a few readers listeners will find out about that in a few weeks how about that okay that works yeah yeah more to follow on that one yeah but you know so, so let's wrap it up speaking of future episodes um what do we have coming up for episode 49 well just as you uh took took the initiative and titled this episode um, for episode forty-eight, did a great job. But by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna float out a title for episode forty-nine. I'm gonna call it the fate of the planet. So in our next episode, what we're going to do is we're gonna take a take on books, and I say books, not novels, not nonfiction books that have something to do with the uh, the fate of the planet, like the, the our uh, environment and our and our excuse me planet that we live on, and you know, where it's going or where the environmental um, situation is going factors into whatever books we choose in some way, sort of loosely uh, sort of intended to tie in with uh, what's traditionally Earth Day in the third week of April. But um, I think that gives us an interesting platform so we can use fiction and nonfiction books in which the environmental factors are like, you know, sort of an underlayer or their front and center, or nonfiction studies, however we want to take that. Next episode, we'll be talking about this planet we live on and what, what its fate might be in terms of the environment. So I'm, I'm excited. I think we can, once we dig into that topic, I think we can get into a lot of uh, varied and sundry different books and things to recommend. Yeah, there's a lot of directions you can go there, both in a fictional and non-fictional way. So uh, it's obviously, you know, an urgent topic. And so it'll be interesting. It, it, it'll definitely be interesting to dive into that and certainly something a little bit different than what we've done uh, with, in any of our recent episodes. So, yeah, that should be an interesting discussion. Looking forward to that. 
Thanks for uh, teasing that. And with that, uh, we have reached the end of episode 48. Thanks for joining us. It's the Book Exchange Podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Yep. Thanks, every for everybody, for listening. Thanks, John, for leading the way. And yeah, we'll be back for episode 49. Talk to you later. Cheers.